Welcome back to The Podvocate. Today I'm talking by phone with Brian Faunen, an attorney, speaker, and author focused on professional responsibility and legal ethics. We begin our conversation talking about how reforms to the rules of professional conduct could increase affordable access to justice. But in light of current events in Washington, we also talk about, as Brian has written, whether these discussions of re-regulating the profession are just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today on The Podvocate. Thank you for having me, Jim. Can you start by introducing yourself to our audience and tell us about your involvement in the area of professional responsibility and ethics? Uh, yes, sir. So I'm Brian Fawn, and I'm a lawyer in Memphis, Tennessee, with a law firm uh, named Lewis Thomason. Been uh, a licensed lawyer since 1998, and about three years or so, four years or so into my career, uh, started becoming a little bit more active in ethics and professional responsibility issues. Today, I am the chair of Tennessee Bar Association Ethics and Professional Responsibility Committee. I've had that role since about 2009. I am currently the secretary of a national ethics lawyers group called the Association of Professional Responsibility uh, Lawyers. Um, and I have written about uh, ethics and spoken on ethics uh, most of my career. And a few years ago, uh, launched a blog uh, called fawnonethics.com uh, to sort of step up my uh, efforts of, of writing about and sharing thoughts about uh, ethics. So we have, obviously, most of our listeners are loyalist students or otherwise in the legal field, but for our listeners who are either not lawyers or haven't taken professional responsibility or an equivalent yet, can you give us kind of a quick explanation and history about the model rules for professional conduct? Uh, yeah, sure. So I can, I can give you a sort of shortened version a little bit just because um, going back a long, long way, uh, we'd go, go way back before my time. Uh, but the model rules have gone through a couple of iterations that are relevant to folks in practice today. There was a period of time in which they were uh, framed up in what would seem a weird way to folks today. Um, they were, it was called the uh, ABA model code of professional responsibility, and it had a series of ethical considerations that were called ECs that weren't necessarily binding rules, but were sort of comments on how things should be, and then they had DRs, which were the actual disciplinary rules, and lots of states tracked those. Uh, as an example, Tennessee, we had uh, rules that were patterned like that uh, as recently as 2003, then the ABA model rules changed to become the model rules of professional conduct and moved to a uh, framework and architecture where you had rules and comments to those rules so that the rules are the black letter items that are enforceable and have to be complied with. And then the comments uh, strive to give guidance uh, for interpreting and applying uh, the rules to particular situations. Um, and while those were in place for quite some time before all the states adopted them. Tennessee, again, as an example where I practice, uh, we moved to that sort of framework in 2003. Only within the last couple of years have we gotten to a place now where every U.S. jurisdiction has rules 
patterned after the model rules because California uh, was the last to make the change, and they made the change uh, in the last two or three years. But the model rules are just that, a model. They are not binding or enforceable on any lawyer, but they have been the template by which uh, states and state courts have adopted the ethics rules that are binding and to the extent they vary from the model rules, you know, they vary in a little bit different ways in different places. But it is the state-level analog to the model rules that lawyers in a particular jurisdiction have to make sure they're complying with rather than the model. So I had a professor once tell me that she thought that the rules of professional conduct as we have it means that lawyers essentially have one of the strongest and most binding uh, doctrines of professional conduct, kind of contrary to the popular image of lawyers as crooks and cons. And I obviously there's a little bit more detail than that, but would you say that's kind of a fair image of our professional ethical guidelines as being some of the staunchest uh, of any profession? Yeah, I do think that's fair. Um, I, I do think that's fair. We, um, we, you know, we, we model ourselves as a self-regulating profession because these rules are primarily enforced by bodies of other lawyers and ultimately you know subject to the supervision of the court and you pretty much can't ever become a judge if you weren't a lawyer so that's sort of where we get to this self-regulating concept but they are while they are not necessarily rules that provide decision making that might be uh, of everyone's flavor of morality they are uh, a pretty good set of ethical guidelines and they are uh, extremely extremely seriously enforced uh, within the profession for the most part. Now, I've been reading uh, the last handful of entries on Fauna and on Ethics, and one of the things that you've talked about in your most recent post is that there's been a lot of continued momentum for some of the different sorts of reform within these model rules. Can you tell me a little bit more about where this momentum is coming from, what are people looking for in the reform that they're seeking, and what are some of the steps that are happening in this process of reform? Yeah, I can try because it's a really good question. Um, you know, it's still even a sort of controversial topic about grab any sort of handful of lawyers from different practices and ask them if you, you think reform's going on. Uh, you're going to get different answers if you think people, uh, you ask them, is the pace of reform right, you're going to get different answers. Um, but I think there's a couple of things that are my best guess to what's driven this most recent and seemingly pretty strongly uh, renewed push for some aspects of rule changes that have been talked about in the past but have never gotten any real momentum. And I think it's really three things is my best guess. Um, it is one you know, the impact that technology is having on the practice of law in the same way that it's having, you know, impact on all aspects of society. Um, I think it is the growing awareness or at least the growing willingness to stop um, refusing to acknowledge that um, for a society that prides itself on um, the rule of law and prides itself on the idea of justice for everybody, that there's just undeniably a problem going on where there are not only, you know, so many people who truly are in bad economic straits and can't afford lawyers. Um, and we've gotten better over time, 
in terms of lawyers' willingness to do pro bono, you know, depending on which party's in power in a particular state, the pendulum sort of swings back and forth between whether you're putting enough money into, you know, court-appointed lawyers and compensating lawyers who take on, you know, true um, pro bono representations. But also what you're seeing seems to be a good bit of data and uh, discussion of the fact that the quote-unquote middle class of society, so many aspects of the things that they might use lawyers for, they you know, lawyers have priced themselves out of being available to those folks um, or at the price point that the lawyers they interact with are offering, those people are making decisions that you know, a, a lawyer is not a good value. So you've got not only true access to justice problems in the profession, but you've also got this phenomenon where we have a lot of lawyers that don't have enough work to do uh, to really make ends meet, and yet large swaths of the population who also aren't using lawyers to solve problems and sometimes don't even have access to information from lawyers or about lawyers to realize that they have a problem a lawyer might solve. And then I think the third piece of it is, with technology playing a really big role in connectedness, is there have been some further, whether you call them reforms or restructuring in countries like in, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, where some of the changes to allow different kinds of partnerships between lawyers and people who are not lawyers to deliver legal services has impacted lawyers in the United States, primarily at the level of you know, firms that have global offices and things like that. But I think these, these three things have come together in such a way that we're starting to see different segments of different states pushing for the idea that the only way to try to better pair up lawyers who don't have enough to do and people who don't have access to lawyers or don't think they can afford lawyers is to find ways through innovation to harness technology and put capital in the hands of lawyers and law firms and people trying to innovate in the legal space uh, to see if we can do a better job of delivering legal services. So that kind of directs me immediately towards another topic that I'm pulling specifically out of your post, which is revisions to model rule 5.4 or its state equivalents. Can you give me the plain language kind of quick summary of rule 5.4? Yeah, so 5.4, the very plain language version is that's the rule that says the only people who can own law firms are lawyers. Um, if you are not a lawyer, you cannot have an ownership interest in a law firm. Um, and it is the rule that simultaneously says, you know, lawyers cannot share fees from clients with people who are not lawyers. And the only jurisdiction in the United States that has had some significant variance on that rule uh, is Washington, D.C. Uh, and they've actually had it for more than 25 years. Um, they've allowed a, a limited uh, approach to letting people who are not lawyers uh, have an ownership or partnership stake in law firms, but they've allowed it only if you know they're contributing to the delivery of legal services through that law firm, and the entity has to be a law firm. And you know, anecdotally, one of the reasons that it, DC was the jurisdiction to do that is you can imagine it's a hotbed for lobbying, and lots of times uh, people that a law firm might want to be able to 
bring in who might be the best connected lobbyist um, are former politicians who aren't necessarily attorneys and the ability to compensate them within a firm structure that would allow them to be a shareholder or an owner or otherwise be able to share fees from a client representation with them plays a plays a big role in dc having been been willing to sort of carve out that approach well thinking about that sort of revolving door of foreign politicians into lobbyists and that relationship to the legal profession and lawmaking definitely makes it sound like having those strong protections is really important. So what are the upshots to having a change? Why is there momentum to modify this rule? Well, I, th- I think it, I think it again, it sort of harkens back to we have seen disruptions in a lot of areas of commercial endeavors over the years in terms of uh, technology and investment from outside funds to help lawyers who might otherwise be spending all of their time representing clients and unable to see some opportunities or even be able to afford those opportunities. The the notion of allowing for outside investment, there seems to be lots of examples of it being effective. And particularly what has happened, I think, over the last decade or so is you have seen a lot of willingness of consumers to use non-traditional approaches to receiving legal services that are working their way into the marketplace rather than being law firms because the the folks that have uh, money that they want to invest or technological ideas they want to pursue because of the rules can't currently link themselves up with lawyers directly so instead they're creating you know alternative platforms and uh, one of those that admittedly isn't around anymore, but that a lot of people saw both lawyers were willing to work with and consumers were willing to work with was um, Avo Legal Services, which for a while uh, was providing essentially they, – they steadfastly refused to say that they were actually referring anybody, but they were, they were providing matching services to lawyers who were willing to provide certain flat rate uh, services for matters at price points that consumers were willing to uh, use it for. But what you saw was a wave of ethics opinions patterned off of rules like this 5.4 that would tell lawyers in a state, you know, because of the way Avo was pricing that to make it financially viable for them, ethics opinions were being written saying, look, you're essentially sharing the fees of the representation with Avo, and Avo is not a lawyer or a law firm, and so you can't do it. So it sounds like there's sort of a weird catch-22 of trying to allow people to have financial access to this, but once you start bringing in any kind of outside financing, then it runs into ethics rules. So you can't have an option where people are getting affordable access. Without affordable access, then there's just no legal service. So what's even the point, I guess? Is that a fair statement of the problem? I think I think some folks would say that's a fair statement of the problem. I d- I don't know that I would go that far, but fundamentally, you know, I I tried to spare everybody going all the way back to the creation of the, you know, the canons of the ABA back to like 1908. But it is it is helpful in this context to think about how that rule 5.4 or what now today is 5.4 sort of originally came into being and it was primarily a rule that was crafted to prevent lawyers from practicing in the form of a corporation. And it was not really a rule that was originally brought into play to protect 
consumers of legal services. It was a very protectionist effort on the part of lawyers. And you fast forward to today, a lot of lawyers practice in corporations. A lot of law firms are structured as corporations. You've got waves of in-house lawyers that, that work directly for corporate employers. You've got states like Tennessee and other states that allow uh, insurance companies to have captive law firms to provide representation uh, to the insureds of an insurance policy, even though the lawyers doing it are flat-out employees of the insurance company. And the only other rationale that, that the law has stuck to for why outside investment becomes a problem is a concern you know, that lawyers express, and they try to avoid expressing it in a way that makes it sound like we are more virtuous or better than other professions. But the argument is always with outside ownership, with people other than lawyers having a stake, they're going to be more focused on the bottom line and they're going to impact uh, lawyers' exercise of independent professional judgment. And if you just look at the wide array of areas in which lawyers practice and you look at situations in which lawyers run afoul of the rules and get punished for it, it is difficult without sounding like you're, you're claiming that something about being a lawyer makes you uh, less likely to be influenced by economics. Um, you have to sort of buy into that uh, to not be willing to contemplate a system in which as long as they're governed by the same ethics rules, however those ethics rules shake out and which ones we agree are still relevant, that people who don't have a law degree um, might be just as capable of complying with those rules to deliver services to consumers. Um, and lawyers uh, oftentimes are driven and impacted by economic decision-making and already are having to navigate those situations while recognizing that they need to put their clients' needs first. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but one of the takeaways that I'm getting from that is it sounds like because you do have these uh, evolution of different structures for for firms or things like in-house counsel that not to imply that there's anything inherently unethical about those arrangements, but this particular ethics rule seems like it's uh, more exclusively handicapping types of arrangements that would benefit middle class in a way that the same rules aren't being applied to hamper those arrangements that are impacting people who have the money to be able to afford in-house counsel in their corporation or things like that. Yeah, what, one of the things that you're definitely seeing is a stratification uh, in terms of the types of law practice and who's doing well and where where legal uh, where legal spend, as they say sometimes in the in-house world, is continuing to grow. And it does seem like the wealthy and corporations have essentially a, a surplus of available legal services to them. And regular people are either less able, uh, less willing, or otherwise less likely to be hiring a lawyer directly. And uh, Professor Bill Henderson, who writes a lot on the idea of whether the legal marketplace is evolving, you know, tried to come up with a shorthand to describe sort of the difference in those sort of deals and, and sort of focused on people law as the idea of um, lawyers out there whose bread and butter involves representing actual human beings. And uh, those folks tend to be the lawyers that do not have enough work and human beings don't seem to be valuing uh, or having the ability to hire lawyers, whereas uh, lawyers that are operating in areas where their primary client base uh, are corporations or other entities that 
we treat as people under the law, but you know they're not actually human beings. Uh, those seem to be doing still quite well and continuing to spend money on very high-priced uh, legal services. And, and admittedly, there's some you know there's some concern and, and pushback on some of the proposals that are being made to lessen restrictions on the ethics rules. Is a belief that you know all that's going to do is again assist the influx of capital into further expanding that divide, you know, that lots of large law firms will be able to take advantage of this and lots of large clients uh, will be able to take advantage of this. And, you know, only time will tell uh, because, you know, we haven't, uh, we just haven't had the opportunities uh, in any real jurisdictions in the United States to innovate in any way and then gather data to see who's right and who's wrong about whether, uh, given how, how, how problematic the status quo seems to be, um, whether trying to change it will, will help rather than hurt. So on the subject of those types of resolutions and motions, um, I know, again, from your blog, that uh, the American Bar Association has a resolution that's encouraging some kind of at least acknowledgement that this sort of divide of people of means and people without the same means are getting access to legal uh, services and the fact that they need to do something about it, but it seems like they're not really taking any kind of firm stance on what should actually be done to even start collecting that data, much less actually have any kind of innovation. Yeah, I I think so. So what you're referring to is that the ABA House delegates just passed something called Resolution 115, and it, in broad strokes, if you just sat down and read it without any awareness of history, you know, is encouraging states to innovate and gather data and see what can be done to make the status quo better, increase access to justice, increase access to information about legal services. But the story of 115 is a a pretty good story about the way uh, ABA ball politics has worked for many, many years now, uh, which is in its original form, the resolution itself looked an awful lot like the one that ended up being passed as a compromise but it had an accompanying report that was originally about nine pages long and that sort of laid out the landscape of these interesting new developments that are occurring where you have countries like, or you know, parts of the world like um, United Kingdom and uh, countries like Australia that have lessened the restrictions on outside ownership uh, or that otherwise have, have tinkered. And then you've got within the United States, a handful of jurisdictions, primarily out west, that have recently, through you know task force um, meetings and work on report and looking at data, have started to go down a path of actually proposing in those states to change their rules. Um, Arizona and Utah, um, probably at the forefront in terms of uh, speed and timing. Uh, California, uh, starting down this path as well of actual jurisdictions that are on the threshold of changing their version of 5.4 to allow lawyers and non-lawyers to partner to deliver legal services and for the people in that equation who who aren't lawyers to be owners of firms and to share fees with the lawyers in structures that, you know, whether you call them alternative business structures or what they end up being, to allow that innovation to occur. And in a couple of those states, they're you know contemplating it through what they're calling regulatory sandboxes, where you sort of open up the space and and let folks play in that space to see 
uh, what can be accomplished and gather the data and move forward. And in order to get to the compromise point where the ABA would, you know, essentially overwhelmingly support the resolution, almost all of the references to those developments got stripped out of the report and an additional paragraph got added to the resolution, you know, saying this resolution doesn't change any rules, including doesn't change ABA model rule 5.4 on non-lawyer ownership. So it, if you just look at it in a vacuum, it, it seems like a helpful rah-rah, the ABA is behind innovation. But the way that sausage was made uh, is just another indication that there are significant parts of the organized bar across the country that still are very, very reticent to the idea that what should be done is revising rules like 5.4 to open the doors to more non-lawyer involvement. So having uh, written about and thought about this a lot, do you have any suggestions for ways that the rules could be worked that could kind of provide a healthier balance for making sure that we're not having this greater flow of capital into the legal profession, but also giving that greater access to people who don't have that capital? I don't know that I have uh, great ideas for what the right uh, solution is. I think I think the ABA's instinct was right that rather than them trying to craft a, a model rule change and then ask states to adopt that, even setting the politics aside of that would probably never pass the ABA, that enough of enough states are headed down this path of, of trying to do this themselves that encouraging each state uh, to take a look at it um, and see because there are complicated issues I mean one of the reasons we talked about this at the beginning one of the reasons that you know we can work as a self-regulating profession is you know the ethics rules can be made applicable to us in any uh, state and enforced by the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court gives us our law licenses well if you are interested in changing the model through which legal services might be delivered, um, as a practical matter, you've got to work through some things like, well, okay, you know, who will govern the people who aren't lawyers in this system? If the legislature is not involved, how does the court in any given state get to authority over somebody that doesn't have a law license? Is it purely a consensual arrangement, or you know, does their state's uh, case law and law about their court being the ultimate regulator of the practice of law, does that allow them to extend far enough to things that we're saying aren't the practice of law because these people aren't lawyers, but we're letting them uh, partner together to provide the legal services. I think if I could if I could be in charge of a, a set of boundaries to work from, I think that I'd want a lot less regulation in the nature of the details of 5.4 on sharing fees with non-lawyers and non-lawyers can't be owners of law firms. Um, and, you know, dropping some ancillary rules like 7.2 in a lot of jurisdictions that says you can't give somebody something of value in exchange for them, you know, recommending your services and focus on preserving and strengthening what's already in the rules, but making it perhaps more prominent that no matter what the arrangement is, and no matter what the practice environment is going forward, that lawyers have to prevent folks from interfering with their independent professional judgment. And then by corollary, make sure that there is an enforcement mechanism in place so that the same rules apply uh, to the people who aren't lawyers that are operating in the space, both to level the playing field and to assure 
that those folks are on board with this idea, um, just like lawyers are, that the lawyers are going to exercise independent professional judgment, um, and that this whole basket of ethics rules, that if you're going to participate in the system, you know, that the, um, the price of poker is, you're going to be bound by the same rules that we're bound by. And I think right now that would be a helpful development for the legal profession because the, the, the simple truth is um, lawyers across the United States are already competing with uh, these people who aren't lawyers to deliver legal services. They may not just be aware that they're doing it, but they are competing with them, and the people they're competing with currently don't have to live by the same restrictions that we have to live by. So a phrase that I heard in there that I think is – Extremely relevant given what's going on in the news right now and kind of is going to transition <laughs> us into what I think my editors are going to call the sexy part of this episode yeah. is interfering with a lawyer's independent professional judgment. So, uh, yeah, so let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to be talking about that idea of interfering with a lawyer's professional judgment on the level of the federal government. Yeah, all right. All right, and we're back. Obviously, a lot of ink has been spilled about the current goings-on in Washington regarding the Attorney General and his relationship with the President, but most notably, the topic in the news right now is the Roger Stone prosecution and the accusations that the President is interfering with the Justice Department either indirectly through tweets or maybe directly through some mechanism that we're not seeing, but that's causing a distinct amount of inappropriate interference by a non-lawyer in the events of uh, a specific legal context. Giving kind of a little bit more of a bigger picture from the Roger Stone prosecution in particular, I know that there is a specific rule that people are accusing William Barr of not following properly regarding who his client is, and I believe that's model rule 1.13, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's right. The, the ABA version would be model rule 1.13, and, and you know, what would be interesting, of course, is um, you know, which, which of the various state analogs of that rule would apply to General Barr, but, but yes, that's the, that's the Jeopardy topic. Can you give us the plain language version of that rule? Sure. The plain language of that rule is very straightforward, which is when you are a lawyer and you have an organizational client, the client is the organization. The client is not any of the human beings that speak uh, as constituents of that organization. And so in the simpler you know, world uh, of corporate representation and things like that, it's just the rule that sort of means you know, if you're an in-house counsel at Federal Express – the Federal Express entity that employs you is your client. The CEO of Federal Express is not uh, your client just because you work in-house at FedEx. In the same way, if you're a, you know, a lawyer uh, at a California firm representing Apple in a case, um, you represent Apple, the company. You don't represent whoever is running the ship at Apple. It also, because you, know, you still have to talk to human beings to take direction, you know, it still talks you through uh, what your obligations are, but it front and center just centers you on the idea that you represent the entity and not its constituent parts. And then it talks you through tough issues of if you come to realize that one of those constituent parts uh, that's wielding power in the organization is acting in such a way that is going to harm the organization, either it's not in the organization's best interests or in a worst case scenario, they want to do something illegal. Uh, it talks lawyers through how they have to work their way up 
within the corporate structure until they can get to the highest level of decision-making to try to stop that person from acting in a way that is going to be detrimental to the organizational entity. That seems like very contrary to at least the public impression of the current relationship between the president and the Justice Department. Is that uh, a fair analysis from where I'm sitting? Uh, it's a fair analysis from where I'm sitting. Uh, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go with that. It, um, it very much seems more like the Attorney General of the United States is acting like the client is the current occupant of the Oval Office and that the client is not uh, the United States as a whole. Now, you know, obviously rules like 1.13 apply directly to government organizations the same way it does private organizations. But admittedly, it, it can be harder to wrap one's head around, you know, the disconnect in normal circumstances between what it means uh, to represent the United States versus to, you know, to represent the president. But at just a simple level of language, it seems to be pretty clear. And historically, uh, attorney generals have done a better job of seeming to realize that there is more to the government of the United States than just the executive branch. Uh, and sometimes there's even more to the executive branch than just uh, the the person uh, the person who's heading heading up that office. So we've seen a little bit of this in the Roger Stone prosecution with the U.S. attorneys who resigned in protest to this sort of interference. How do these professional ethics concerns impact people who work in the Department of Justice or other areas of the government when they're working under someone who doesn't seem to be following the ethical guidelines? Is it possible to continue to work in that environment, uh, given your own uh, personal ethical considerations? Well, it's, it, is, it is possible. Um, it can be difficult, and it's one of the reasons why knowing the version of the, uh, the version of 1.13 that applies can matter a lot. But, you know, fundamentally, um, there are some variations in different jurisdictions about whether a lawyer who represents an organization once they do all they can do internally to try to stop somebody from acting in a way that is against the law or contrary to the, the interests. Some jurisdictions then say if they can't get it fixed, some jurisdictions say that they go outside the organization to try to get it accomplished. Some jurisdictions don't offer any real guidance. And some jurisdictions, like, for example, Tennessee, go so far as to say, you know, you ultimately have to withdraw from the representation if you can't get them to get back on the path of complying with the law. And if withdraw from the representation, if your only way to do that involves resigning from your employment, that can be a really tough decision for somebody to have to make, no matter how strongly they feel about something bad uh, occurring. But in the context of major political decisions, that can be you know even harder to work through and figure out. But for those lawyers, and I think it was four of them that all withdrew from the Stone prosecution, and one of them resigned their employment completely, and then one of them, uh, who was a lawyer that had been on uh, Robert Mueller's prosecution team, um, sort of went halfway, which was resigned from their position as a special district attorney in D.C., but kept their position as an assistant U.S. attorney in um, Baltimore. But the interaction can be very, very difficult for a lawyer whose boss is a lawyer and they have questions about whether their boss is complying with the law and the rules because we have a set of ethics rules that talk about the difference between being a supervising lawyer and a subordinate lawyer and that do not let 
lawyers be off the hook for wrongdoing by simply being able to say something like they followed orders. You know, there are there are segments of the of the world that accuse that of being what the the rules for lawyers are, but they're not. You know, they make every lawyer responsible for their own unethical conduct. But what they do do, and it makes sense that they have to have a provision like this, is they do give lawyers who are being supervised by other lawyers the ability to let their boss have the final say on difficult decisions. And the way those are described are if you're in a situation in which what you have is a a reasonable resolution of a, you know, arguable professional duty type situation. And I'm not getting the language exactly right. I don't have the rules in front of me. But essentially, if, it's a, if, if what you're in is a situation in which reasonable minds can differ over what your ethical obligation is in a particular situation, and if what your boss is proposing is a reasonable resolution of that arguable question of professional duty, then the rules, because somebody has to make that decision in a team environment, allow for the subordinate lawyer to go along with that decision. And if that decision turns out to be wrong, then it's the supervising lawyer that's going to be in trouble, not the subordinate lawyer. But if you're a lawyer being told to do something by your boss and it's not a reasonable resolution of an arguable duty, um, then it becomes very, very difficult because you can't simply go along to get along um, without being at risk of your own license being in jeopardy. I suppose that gives a sort of cold comfort in the knowledge that those types of layered protections for subordinates means that we're not going to have a total hollowing out of the Department of Justice if things up top are happening poorly, that there still is some degree to which subordinates will be able to act within ethical obligations without being forced to resign or violate their own ethical codes? Um, I hope so. Um, you know, the, the, news, the, the news in the last couple of days seems to be uh, down the side of, of, you know, what in, in a lot of other countries we would call a sort of political purge um, of, of people being uh, forced out if they disagree with the administration. But in terms of, you know, line prosecutors and, and rank and file folks, I think that's right. And I think if you focus even on the Stone case as the example, you know, I think what you still saw was the the new prosecutors who came in to replace the ones who withdrew. Uh, I think they made arguments for a sentencing approach that were a lot closer uh, to what the original prosecutors on the ground had suggested, and not nearly as com- not nearly as compliant with what the Department of Justice intervening from the top seemed to be indicating should happen. So, there's been a couple of points in this conversation where we've touched on the nature of the different exact versions of the rules and how they apply. Is there a clear answer for what set of rules applies to the federal government? Um, I I think for the lawyers that are in D.C., I think the easiest answer is that uh, for a lot of these lawyers that we're all talking about here, the D.C. rule would apply. Um, For lawyers that work for the Justice Department in various different states, I think the, the likeliest answer is that particular state's version of the rules is what applies to them. But we do have, in almost every jurisdiction at least, uh, an attempt to wrestle through the choice of law issue in ethics rules, usually numbered as 8.5, uh, and it sets out a, a test that's not 
that much different than some contract tests that you see about like most substantial relationship sort of deals. But it essentially it essentially draws a default line of if it's a litigation matter, then it's the rules of whatever state the court is located in will apply. And if it's not a litigation matter, then it's either wherever that lawyer is located or possibly another jurisdiction if the lawyer's conduct has a more substantial uh, impact on some jurisdiction other than where they are. So I think in the in the situation of the, the Stone case, I think you'd start from the premise that I think the Attorney General of the United States would be bound by D.C.'s ethics rules, and then you would look to uh, the court uh, in which the, the particular criminal prosecution is going in, and then if there was some difference between relevant rules there, you'd go in favor of the place where the, the court was located. Of course, in the Stone situation, since it's all in D.C., there really isn't any issue to be worried about. But in some of the other politically important cases that news media seems to be indicating are being wholesale you know, looked at from the top down by the AG, then you might start getting into you know, New York's version of the rules or some other uh, jurisdictions where prosecutions are happening. So with all these different types of rules, obviously the executive branch and the legislative branch have their own uh, oversight committees and inspector general's offices, and there's obviously varied levels of effectiveness depending on how well they're staffed currently. But purely from the perspective of the bar associations, is there a mechanism that complaints or discipline could be leveled against the attorney general or against Department of Justice attorneys? Uh, yeah, conceivably so. Um... You know, my understanding, and I, I can't say that I've followed every aspect of the case completely, but I would, you know, you can file, uh, lawyers can file disciplinary complaints with state bar associations about lawyers. They tend to not necessarily get the same sort of treatment if it's just some lawyer with no connection to a jurisdiction that's filing a disciplinary complaint because they've read a, a news story. Uh, but, but, lawyers, but lawyers have licenses, and in any jurisdiction where they've got a license, there is some sort of um, body that is responsible for disciplining lawyers, and so, you know, if they're, if what they're doing involves the practice of law, uh, and if somebody files a complaint against that lawyer, and if that complaint's got merit, then uh, it's got the potential to be investigated and the potential for um, discipline to be imposed. So I want to take a quick second for a little closing thought. Um, I've had a lot of my friends who are not in law school who have. Uh, sometimes as a way of poking fun, but sometimes out of a sense of genuine concern, I think, uh, asked me about what it's like to be going into the legal profession when you have these sorts of events happening at the federal level or these, these questions about the rule of law and professional ethics and things like that. So do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners of future attorneys or would-be attorneys about what the continuing ongoing relevance is of professional ethics and how to kind of keep our heads up and not fall into desperate nihilism? Yeah. Well, I don't know that I'm the best authority for, for telling anybody why not to fall into desperate nihilism, uh, <laughs> but, I will say, but, I, but I will say this. I mean, I, I think while granted the, the level of problematic conduct here might be more than we've ever – more than we have ever seen, um, and particularly uh, that, that seems to be true where uh, unlike Watergate, which led to a lot of reforms in legal ethics – Unlike Watergate, we don't seem to have um, the willingness of other institutions of government to push back against the executive branch. But I think that um, the, the role of ethics and professional responsibility uh, probably has not been more prominent and important at any time since Watergate. Uh, 
Um, and I strongly suspect that whenever we get out on the other side of the ongoing events, um, there are going to be interesting uh, discussions and renewed focus on what lawyers should do, how lawyers should behave, and what their roles should be. And I think it'll be a very, very interesting time to wrestle through those issues when also, you know, outside of politics, you've got these questions of, is there going to be fundamental regulatory change? And, you know, I think that time's going to tell us here how lawyers are going to perform and how lawyers are going to be viewed. And I think that's going to play some role in whether people will listen to lawyers say, you know, if you allow people who want lawyers to meddle in this system, you know, it's going to impact the independent professional judgment of lawyers. If, if simultaneously we're seeing some of the most prominent you know, lawyers on the most prominent stage not seeming to live those concepts, uh, I think it's going to be hard for the public to understand. Well, on that... Uh... I can't really call to mind the right adjective to call that note, but on that note, uh, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Podvocate. Brian, is there anything that you'd like to plug or advertise with your airtime? Uh, I mean, I, I very much appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you. Um, you know, if I was going to plug anything, I harken back to the fact that I've got a blog on nonethics.com. Uh, I, I do what I can to put some content there. Uh, once or twice a week. Uh, sometimes when uh, life gets out of hand, there's some delays. But if you're just coming to on and on ethics, there's uh, four four years of blog content you can get caught up on. And I will certainly not have the discipline to avoid writing about current events as they develop. So uh, <laughs> hope hopefully we'll um, uh, we'll see it out together. Well, we will throw a link to that in the episode description. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources needed to make this show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, Dialogue DeNovo, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.